Hi everyone, I'm Irina and today I'm interviewing Aral Balkan, the founder and lead designer of IndiePhone. Welcome, <laughs> welcome Aral. Uh, why don't you tell us, um, give us a big a brief intro about what IndiePhone is. Well, IndiePhone is a phone that we're making that aims to empower regular people, mere mortals, to own their own data. And the way in which we're going to do this is by creating a beautiful user experience. So a user experience that can compete with the likes of iPhone or Google's Nexus. So when you when you say deeply empowering, and this is yeah. uh, this features quite prominently on your site, what exactly yeah. do you mean? Well, it's the opposite of superficially empowering. So user experience and experience design has the power to empower you. Um, so when you use something like Google Maps, for example, regardless of whether Google is a closed silo, etc., it empowers you in the here and now. It tells you how to get from one place to another, which you would otherwise not have known. Um, but does it empower you in the long term? What are you giving up by using the services of these closed silos? What are you giving up for a superficial experience today or a little bit of empowerment today in the long term? So user experience is essential in empowering us. But what I mean by deeply empowering is not just in the now, not just in a Disney-esque facade, but in the long term. So that's what I mean by deeply empowering. OK, so you're making a distinction between um, allowing people and users to be able to do what they want and make choices you know, and kind of power their story or, or journey through life um, because whatever they have the tools, because they have the abilities, and that's why you know user experience is important. Um, versus kind of um, empowerment in terms of control and ownership of data in the long run. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who the, the real question at the heart of all of this is who owns our tools? Who owns our data? Uh, if 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 the answer to that is corporations then that's going to create a very different type of society to if the answer to that is us as individuals. So that's what I mean by deeply empowering. Um, there is great uh, value in creating beautiful user experiences that empower people in the short term, superficially. Uh, but I think what the real problem we need to solve is how do we empower people uh, truly, deeply, in the long term. OK, and what do you think the dangers are of you know, us not controlling our data. Like, what does this potential society look like? Well, I call it digital feudalism. It is a society in which we have to rent access to our tools, our own data, and to the mechanisms by which we derive intelligence from that data, because that's more valuable than the data itself, in a sense. Data is just raw materials. Um, Google is not so valuable just because it has our data but because of what it can do with our data, because of how it can combine various pieces of data to build a profile of intelligence about us. Uh, that's what's really valuable. But what's the problem with that? I mean, say, you know, we, as you put it in your terms, we rent, um, you know, access to potentially things that are actually our data, and other times other people use it, you know, advertisers or whoever yeah. else. Uh, you know, why is that bad? I mean, maybe well, this like, you know, sharing is caring. Uh, everyone yeah. benefits. Well, there's, there's I get the steps I want, which might yeah. be email, there's, whatever. There's nothing wrong with sharing the things that you want to share. 
But there is, I believe, everything wrong with a system where private is not the default, where you don't have control over what you share and what you want to keep to yourself. So if private isn't the default, then anything that you want to keep private, by definition, has a, an association of wrongdoing, an association of guilt attached to it, if private is not the default. So that's why um, I believe it's really essential that we make private the default and then allow people to share as much as they want. You know, if you want to share something and you, are, you understand the ramifications, at least to some degree, of sharing that information, that's perfectly fine. But that which you want to keep private should be truly private. In our world today, we seem to have redefined the meaning of private to mean between you and Facebook or between you and Google. It used to mean for your eyes only. And I, I, that's the definition of private that I want to take it back to. What are the, what do you feel are the dangers of um, this kind of new version of privacy? And if I can also ask, I mean, I'm kind of interested in what your motivations are and how you became interested in this topic in general. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take the first one. What are the dangers of this notion of privacy? Well, our civil liberties derive from our right to privacy. The right to privacy is a universal human right. It's actually enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in Article 12, and there's a reason for that. Without privacy, if we are, if we are constantly surveilled, we will start to change our behavior. We will start to not say certain things. We will start to lose civil liberties. So our civil liberties and our human rights actually stem from this fundamental right to privacy. So in a world without this, we're going to enjoy less civil liberties, we're going to enjoy less human rights. And the character of our society is going to change. If you're constantly being surveilled, you're going to act differently, you're going to behave differently. And that's just not a society that I want to live in. Um, I want to at least have the alternative of not partaking in that society and yet still being able to partake in modern life. So you're kind of equating um, the kind of the current move towards uh, lack of ownership and and you know companies owning information and data with us by default uh, with with kind of a 1984 William Big Brother society where we don't necessarily um, have the freedom or, or uh, to to say what we think or, or kind of challenge the status quo and um, I mean is that is that correct or in a sense in a sense yes and there are other aspects of this as well though. Um, if we think about data as capital, it's the term that I'm seeing being right. used a little bit, uh, it, it, it brings forth the question, what is the nature of this relationship that we are signing up to when we use, say, Google or Facebook? Um, we are giving away our data in exchange for a free service, a so-called free service. Of course, it's not free, so I, I do have problems with the way they are presented because they are less than honest in how they present themselves. There's an exchange happening here, mm -hmm. but it is, as I see it, fundamentally a dishonest exchange because people who are entering into it are not aware of exactly what they're giving up and the value of that, of what they're giving up. So it's not an honest exchange in that sense. Um, but uh, further to that, I think one of the, uh, the, the, the great dangers is that we are losing control of what we can do with this information. And it's not something that we can get back as well. So, it's a kind of, um, so these corporations are becoming 
more powerful, we're we're losing the ability to control and, and well, basically, yeah. I mean, the way I like to put this is, we are the quarries being mined. You know, if you take that further, if you take that further, you know, um, it's not too much of a stretch to think of people as the new livestock being farmed. Mm -hmm. You know, our data is valuable. Our data is capital, and this is being taken in a sense from us without giving us the information we need to make a rational decision about this, um, or sometimes with programs like Care.Data in the UK, for example, without even our consent, that we have to actually say, no, 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 please don't take this. You know, we have to opt out. Um, that, that is a de facto admission that we don't have ownership rights over our data, and we need to change that. And this is not just a technological thing. We need uh, to work in the political sphere to change this. Mm -hmm. We need to work in the educational sphere to change this. But we also need technical. Um, we need the technical alternatives so that we can say to people, you know, the only alternative is not to switch off, because that's not a viable alternative. But that is what we are increasingly going to be faced with if every competing product out there essentially has the same business model. If Google's only other competitors also are free services that monetize your data then you know, you're going to be left in a position where your decision is which one of these corporate entities do I give my data to. Mm -hmm. And I want an alternative to that. I want an alternative to that where you're in control, but you're not having to sacrifice your user experience. So that, that empowerment in the short term, that's important. That the empowerment in the short term is very, very important, and that's the bit that we miss, I think, in the open source world sometimes. You know, we're very arrogant in how we say, it is open, take it. You don't like how it works? Change it. Some can. Something can be open, but inaccessible. It can be open, but not accessible to a group of people, and we have to really understand that if we're going to win this fight. Okay, well, just, just before we kind of go into that in a bit more detail, um, you talk about, obviously, the lack of choice between business models. Um, I mean, for, like, how is IndyFone addressing this, and, and what's the business model? Well, the business model is very simple. We're going to sell you a phone, a beautiful phone that you're going to love. If you're not technically savvy, and you want us to set up your own server for you without even knowing what a server is, right, your own cloud, we call it IndyCloud, if you want us to set that up for you and maintain it for you like a gardener would take care of your garden without exerting any sort of ownership rights to your garden, um, then we can do that for a monthly subscription. That's part of the business model. But that is it. That is it. And, and, and it is open source. The Indie Cloud is open source. Indie OS is open source. For people who are technically savvy, you can set up your own server anywhere you want. Please do and run it yourself. Um, and you'll still be buying the phone. That's our business model. You know, and, and in, in a lot of ways, it's a much older business model. You know, here's a fish. Take the fish. The fish is not going to go and spy on you once you get it home. You know, it's just a fish. We're selling you a fish, and that's how we make our money. Okay. It's not a fish, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but, um, so, so um, I understand it's how... It's cool if it looked like a fish. Yeah. Um, you're approaching this in a, in a kind of... Um, you know the the operating system is open source and, and you can you can host everything else. But how are you going to um, are you going to enforce or ensure that applications are built in a way that they don't store any data or make copies? Exactly. I mean, what, what's exactly. your plan for that? Uh, and 
And, and who's going who's gonna to build these apps? Right. So initially, for the core applications for this platform, we are. We're going to build the apps. So, um, and that's, that's at the very beginning. And that's essential, again, because just building an open source operating system is not enough. We already have that, right? We already have Firefox OS, for example. It doesn't solve the problem, nor was it even out to solve the problem of empowering people to own their own data. It solved the problem of how we build an operating system using open web technologies, you know. Um, and it solved that problem well. But there is no ecosystem around it. There is no mechanism for handling data around it. So it runs web applications, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you have an open source operating system that can only run web applications, which doesn't come with many useful web applications of its own. Whose applications are people going to use? Google's. So what we're trying to do is avoid that. Sure, but but say um, there's a lot more choice, right? So there's a lot more, there's a much wider ecosystem when it comes to building web applications. Like that's something that people know how to do. There's a lot out there, and presumably, well, there is a lot out there, but it okay. is it is quantity, not quality. There but, are, I would argue, very few people who know how to make excellent web applications. Most of these people work for companies like Google. Most of these teams are rather big teams because building excellent applications, web applications, I'm not talking about just sites, but applications, is a hard problem using web technologies today. It is a sort of problem that requires a lot of engineering effort. Sorry, go ahead. And what do you mean by, I mean, what do you mean by excellent? Like, I mean in terms of the user experience, in terms of beautiful experience. Okay. So you look at, like, let's get another Google example. Gmail is an excellent user experience. But there are, well, in terms of web applications, as far as they yeah, go, it's, all right, it's, I, think I, I do have a different standard for web applications, um, yeah. which is lower than for the, the state of the art in native applications. Um, but as far as web applications go, that is an excellent user experience. And it's not just in terms of the aesthetics, et cetera. You know, people started using it because it was one of the first things that gave them their email, access to their email everywhere, right? Which was an advantage of the internet and an advantage of the web. You didn't have to have it in a silo on one computer that you had to then sync to a different computer, etc. So this is all user experience. It's not just UI. But um, the, the uh, issue with it is that that's Google. Google can make Gmail, right? And, and they have multiple versions of it that are uh, that are optimized for various types of devices, etc. It's not a trivial thing. So there are a lot of web developers out there making websites, making content-centric uh, content-centric web products. But there are far fewer making behavior-centric web products, web applications, and fewer still who know how to make great ones. So. Isn't the issue then that there aren't enough, um, you know, people people who care about you know the user experience, building things and uh, building things and applications that are um, you know that are not that are decentralized or that don't don't um, enforce owning the data and everything else? Like, isn't that the problem? Well, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean that that is that is definitely part of the problem because if you take what I was saying even further, you know, if Web development for applications is hard. There are a small group of people who can do that. And then you add on decentralization. Now, that's a whole different aspect. So centralized, building centralized applications in terms of user experience is far simpler 
orders of magnitude simpler than building a decentralized application. I would argue that the biggest challenge we have for our time is how do we solve the usability issues and the user experience issues of decentralized applications. This is not a solved problem in any sense, and unfortunately, there aren't many people who are even aware that you know, this is an important problem that we need to be solving. Of course, some of the people who are featured on your site, some of the people in the mm. internet community are, are trying to solve these issues. But they're hard issues um, because we're, 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 we're talking about uh, we're, we're talking about a system that is architecturally architecturally harder to make usable. So, okay, I've got like so many questions. I'm trying to order them. So, one of the things that um, so obviously you know here at Redecentralized.org, we care about promoting and growing the kind of ecosystem and community around decentralized projects and yeah. um, and exploring the model of decentralization, decentralized governance, decentralized you know storage um, and communication and everything else. Um, <clears throat> in what way, I mean, is would you say the indie phone is, is decentralized and is it just in terms of being able to set up your own server? Is there any other things that you've kind of been thinking about in the decentralization space? I think it's it's uh, a continuum. So architecturally, IndyPhone is going to be as peer-to-peer -peer as we can make it architecturally at the lowest levels. And it needs to be that way so that it can grow. The ideal vision, I mean, if we could just say, hey, let's snap our fingers and let's have a decentralized phone, it would be entirely peer-to-peer. Right? But we won't be able to compete on user experience if that's what we're going to do. People are used to not 99%, 100% availability of their data, um, which is something that we cannot, no, no decentralized peer-to-peer -peer system uh, can, can guarantee that without some central nodes that are helping out. So initially, that will probably be the architecture that we go with. Um, the system itself, architecturally, at the core level, will be working and will support peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, but we will have some centralized nodes that basically are there for availability and to improve user experience. And I guess the process, the journey, really, is how do we remove those gradually as we're going. And it's the same with the interactions that we're creating as well. The goal is not to just uh, remove people, disconnect people from the networks that exist today. It is to make the canonical location of their data a place that they own. And then if they want to distribute from there, or if they want to weave in their current social networks, which may be closed silos, into that, that's fine. But it, because the goal really is uh, to wean them off of it. Slowly, and it's not to stop them from doing things that they want to do. If they want to partake in these things, of course, right? Um, but it is to give them that option of private by default, and you decide what you want to share and what you don't want to share. So, and and that's going to be a continuum. You know, we we need to be pragmatic. We need to get version one out that can compete on user experience. Because if we can't do that, if we can't make as seamless, as beautiful a user experience as the iPhone or Google Nexus, not copying the user experience, but as seamless, we've lost. There is no reason to be doing this 
because we will lose the consumer space. And if we lose the consumer space, I believe we've lost this battle. So, okay, so um, I have two immediate things from that. Do you, firstly, do you think user experience is the main factor for when it comes to mass adoption? Um, yes, entirely. 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 So, I mean, like, we we are that? living in the age of experiences. There was a time when features were important. I call this the age of features. Well, what about marketing budgets? You know, <laughs> I feel like um, I think marketing, the role that marketing plays, is overblown. Of course, marketing budgets are important. Of course, being able to get out into well-known uh, brand or you know, well, yeah, and on television, etc., and to have those sort of budgets—that's important. But, but look at Microsoft. Well, look at Microsoft. Right? They have huge marketing budgets, and uh, look at how their latest Windows uh, products are doing. Look at the the spiral that they have had, right? From dominant, dominant, dominant to laughing stock. Right, because no matter how much you pump into marketing, if your product doesn't back it up, why is Apple where it is? It's not because of marketing. To say that it's marketing would be a, the most naive assumption, and it is only because that's what's visible. They've got great marketing, but yeah. they've got an even better product. They have a product that backs it up. It starts with the product, and the marketing is what tells you about that beautiful product. Okay. Whereas we, we usually see the opposite, where the marketing tells you this dream that the product just doesn't back up. And that's fine. You may sell to this generation, but what about the next generation and the next generation of buyers? So I'm, I'm glad you, um, um, you brought up product. I mean, I'm in agreement, which is obviously in order to actually get mass adoption, you have to be able to be comparable, you know, on, on stuff like UX um, because the majority of people aren't going to sit there and, and make tons of compromises because of privacy or because Nor of... should they have to. Nor I should they have to. to. Yeah. But, but Arisa, what I want to get to is like, but I mean, let's look at, at Apple. I mean, how much do you think it costs them to, to, to build the iPhone and the app ecosystem, you know, you know, and I mean, that's a huge company with a huge. I mean, they have like what, more yeah. money than the Federal Reserve. Like, I mean, that that's a. Well, they, they, you have to understand they weren't using all of that money to build this product either. Um, but, but yes. But how much time and large, money do you think? You know, do you, how much time and money do you think is necessary to build something that could be comparable to um, to the iPhone and and also I guess the 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 app ecosystem that they have, which is actually what locks right. people in, right? They buy the apps and then they stay with Apple yeah. because they've they've already got those apps. Um, not to belittle the task at hand, because it is an audacious project and it is a huge task at hand. But with that caveat, I would say not as much as you might think, because. We are, I mean, in, in this case, we are comparing, of course, a new product that's, you know, a couple of years away to a product that's been uh, maturing over the last seven years, an excellent product that's been maturing with the support uh, of a multi-billion dollar company. Um, but to create a great user experience doesn't necessarily take that huge swath of investment itself. It takes focus. Who and an organization that's structured 
that is design-led, that is experience-driven, and a team whose focus it is to create a great user experience. So the expensive parts of these are, of course, actually producing it. The expensive part is that design process and the amount of labor, et cetera, that's going to go into this. But um, we are going to be carrying out, or we are actually currently carrying out the, the first stage of the design process right now, and I'm bootstrapping that. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I'm, the budget that I'm looking at right now, especially when this flat that my family has in Ankara sells, that's how I'm going to be, uh, that's how I'm majorly um, financing this, uh, is about 100 grand in terms of uh, British pounds. And that's enough for us to actually carry out the initial design to come up with the user experience for this mm -hmm. phone uh, and to be able to communicate that and to go to crowdfunding. And when we go to crowdfunding, we're going to ask for several million. Um, but that is to actually continue this process and then to manufacture the phones. And we're not going to make millions of these phones. We're going to follow the Fairphone model of about 10,000, 25,000 uh, units in the, in the first one. Because the goal is to create this beautiful experience, get it into people's hands, get them excited about this, get them actually using it, and then we will go from there and we will iterate from there. So, you know, we're starting small, although what our scope is large in terms of having hardware, software, and, and services around it, it's only as large as it needs to be for us to control the user experience. Because if we are going to compete with Apple, they control hardware, software, and services. Google, mm -hmm. when they're doing Nexus, not Android in general, but Nexus, they control hardware, software, and services. If we don't control hardware and software services, we're not even playing at the same level. We don't. We have a, a user experience handicap that we cannot overcome. We're just starting at the same level. Okay, so um, so you've specifically focused on the design first, and you've yes. you, you've you know I, I guess in some way kind of avoided dealing with some of the other practicalities in terms of actually the software or the hardware uh, until, until until later, until you've got like a proven design and you are um, focused on, ha on on controlling the full, you know, the full stack. My question is, is that, you know, there's a lot, uh, you know, to my experience, <laughs> in my experience, there's a lot of work that will have to, you know, come in on these other levels. Yeah. and. Have you thought about joining existing projects, or you know, or helping out people, you know, developers and technical people who are already working on similar stuff, uh, and bring your kind of design-led expertise and perspectives? Or did you, you know, why did you feel like you need to do something different and new and start from scratch? Well, I think there's several questions there. Um, we are definitely talking to lots of different people in these various areas. Um, this is not something that you know I'm going to be doing by myself. Um, there are a lot of people who are working in this area, uh, some of which it might make sense to bring in to this project. Um, so when we go to crowdfunding, you will see the people that will make up the core team, as well as uh, I, I think you will see that there are some people from these projects that you have probably heard of. Um, so we are definitely talking to both people in the open source community who are working on things right now. and elsewhere mm -hmm. um, in terms of talent for, for going ahead. Um, the other part of your question, uh, which 
I forget now. <laughs> this is why I don't like multi-part okay. questions. So, what was the yeah, second part? I'll, I'll break them down. So I guess um, there's all these things I'm thinking about, which is one... Oh, you said, you said, sorry, I remember now. You said, uh, well, are you, you know, why are you doing your own thing, and did you consider working? Yeah, why, just, why you started from scratch right. as opposed to well, adopting an existing project and bringing your design skills, you know, to right. them? Because I'm sure they'd, well, they'd appreciate it. Definitely, but I think this also is a fundamental misunderstanding that we really need to clear up about design. Design is not a layer. It's not an aspect of the project. It's a cross-cutting concern. So what I call experience design is holistic. It is not veneer, in a sense, that we can bring to an existing project. Usually, the misconception is that it has to do with aesthetics. So you, know, you hear terms like, well, can you pretty it up, or can you prettify it? Um, and let's just bring some pixel pushers in, and they'll make it better. Design is not about aesthetics. Aesthetics is a part of it. It's, it's an important part because of the way a thing looks immediately tells us about how it wants to be used. We call that an affordance in design. But that is the extent of it. It is about function as much as, if not more so, than the form. And that is holistic. So your database structure has an influence on the usability of your application, right? The, the choices you make everywhere along that stack have to be design-led. So it's not something you can just come into a project and say, hey, the designer is here to save the day. It's about the organizational structure. Will they even listen to me? I wouldn't be doing my own project if I thought changing the dominant culture of open source today would be easier than making my own phone. I'm not a masochist. I'm, I'm making my own phone because I actually think, given how deep-rooted this culture is of features-driven development, features-led development, mm -hmm. by enthusiasts, for enthusiasts, if I didn't believe that this was so ingrained that it is almost impossible to change by working within the confines of traditional open source, I wouldn't be making my own phone. I'd be supporting people who I believe could actually create a product that could compete in the consumer space. I don't see this. If I saw this, I would support them because, like I said, I'm not a masochist. This is a hard problem to be solving. Okay. Uh, this is not a project that has a, a finish date. You know, we have shipping dates, etc. But this is something I'm kind of devoted the rest of my life to working on. Um, it, it's not a side project. So, but I want to see this exist. I want to see these alternatives exist, and I don't see traditional open source being able to do this because of how they're structured and because there is an arrogance there as well. It's not, we are not aware of the problem or we're not addressing the problem and sometimes when the problem is shown, there's a huge resistance to it because of the culture. Sure, but I think the other thing with open source, I mean, so I, I, I work in, in open source, we, we build open source tools. Um, uh, I, 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 I have as well, even on um, my day platforms job. in the past. And, and the uh, problem is, is that obviously to bring user experience in a central, um, to be kind of really the core of what you're doing, you have to architect that all first and essentially be a bit of a dictator. You need to be like, right, this oh, yes. is the way it's going to work. And then it's only it's then do you have... Well, democracy and that's part of the problem. Sure. And, and you, you can only really then, after the fact, after saying this is how it's going to work, this is what it needs to be able to do, this is what the different, you know, this is the information architecture, this is how you move from state to state, this is how responsive it is, 
this is how, you know these are the types of actions the user will you know you have to like come up with it and then only then let people fill in and actually build pieces which is very difficult if you if you're doing obviously componentized pieces of work where somebody might think oh I want to add an extra you know feature that was not intended or whatever right and I like, I don't think we should confuse design led development with waterfall development so right. when I say design led or experience driven development I'm not talking about big upfront design which is what you just described in terms of having a big design process and then a development process and then maybe we test at the end if there's time that is classic waterfall we've known for mm -hmm. decades that that doesn't work um, and yet people still do it especially in the okay, so, so what, you what, what but, are you proposing? so design led development is about having designers lead development. You work iteratively. So you can still work in an agile fashion in two-week iterations, etc., designing sufficiently for each iteration. But it is design that is leading, not development that is leading. And that's really important because design is about our assumptions. And they are assumptions, right? We have a vision. And based on that vision for what we want, we make certain assumptions. When we start to build those assumptions, development, that's when we actually start understanding about the thing that we're building because that's when we can start touching it and we can start interacting with mm -hmm. it. And that informs the next iteration of design. So this is a cyclical process. It's an iterative process. Um, but today, that's not how things are done. Today, it's more like, hey, we can do this. Let's do it. And we can also do it three different ways. So let's put a preference for how people want to do it. And it's about choice being, you know, do you want to be able to customize everything about this interface um, or not? That's, that's fine. And it's really great to have these scenes in open source. But that is not mutually exclusive to providing beautiful defaults. And that's where we're failing. So these open products have to provide beautiful defaults if they're to compete with closed products. And it's not a matter of it's hard. Yes. But if we don't do this, we can't compete. Yes, open source is huge. It runs the infrastructure of the internet. But if you look at the consumer space, the products people hold in their hands and they use every day, open source is non-existent. It's been 30 years of free software foundation, 20 years of open source in the vein of Tim O'Reilly, and we don't have one stellar breakout success story in the consumer space yeah. for open source. So if we keep doing things the way that we're doing and expecting different results, that's madness. You know, that's, that's just Einstein. That's his, his beautiful quote about how if you keep doing the same things and expect different results, that's the definition of madness. We need to change. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter that it means that our culture has to change, that it can't be this, you know, programmer culture of features and meritocracy necessarily because design is not something you can do with pull requests. That needs to change, and I hope it will. It's not mutually exclusive. But um, Ara, how do we get? I mean, how does it change, right? I mean, how do we get? Lots of different ways. Interviews like this, people watching it and going, you know what? Yeah, I'm getting really frustrated that I'm working on this open source project that only other enthusiasts can use. I want what I make to be used by millions and millions and millions of people. I want it to make their lives better. Not just because it's open, but because it empowers them by the experiences it gives them. Right? If you think about it, our lives are just a string of experiences. And those experiences matter. What we call experiences 
our, 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 our little grains of time out of our lives, out of our, our, the hourglasses of our lives. They matter. You know, um, as much as it's important to deeply empower people, deeply empowering people includes empowering them in the here and now as well. Includes these great, building these great experiences. And we have to, in the open source community, understand this. Um, not only because it will improve people's lives, but like I said, whether or not we get this, whether or not we start creating products that can compete in the consumer space will determine the character of society going forward. Whether it's a digital feudalism or whether it's one where we enjoy privacy, civil liberties, and human rights. Okay, so I, so we're we're pretty much out of time, and I feel like that's a pretty pretty good moment <laughs> to end on. Um, okay. And I think you know, I think it's a, it's a really good message, which is you know. Get designers involved, you know, at the start to be at the, not at the ju yeah at not, the start, yeah, not, not just involved. Let exactly. them lead. Let and, them and, lead. And have a fundamental sort of control throughout the whole, the whole stack and the ecosystem. I, I actually still have loads of questions. I was like, well, you know, could you do a demo? Well, we can do another one. <laughs> like, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like let's um, let's leave it for now. Okay. Um, and uh, well, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you very much, um, Earl, and thank you. how do people get involved? How do they help? When's the crowdsource? Well, we don't have a definite date for the crowdfunding yet, um, but we do have a, new, uh, a newsletter on the website. Um, we have a Twitter account. We are keeping people up to date, um, and we will need support through every step of the process, um, trying to be as transparent about it as possible and keeping people up to date as much as I can. Um, so really, we just you know spread the word, support us if you can. If you can't donate to the pre-crowdfunding period right now, we're accepting donations in Bitcoin and possibly other traditional currencies soon. So you know whatever you can do, even if it's just spreading the word, it will help. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very Great. much. Thank you. Take Bye. care.